Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yahoo Finance presents It's a Jungle Out There, the podcast where we take a wild approach to work and management. This week, we're discussing crabs and how to navigate sabotage and toxic behavior in the workplace. That's the sound of crabs, which have been caught and are in a fisherman's bucket. If they worked together, they could easily get away. But because they scrabble over each other and pull each other down as soon as one approaches the edges, they end up on a dinner plate. It's a wonderful metaphor for a type of behaviour we've all witnessed in the workplace. So what is the psychology in humans that informs this crab-like behaviour and how do we combat it? Hello and welcome to all our listeners. Joining me today is the incredible Dr. Tara Swart. She is a neuroscientist, an executive advisor, a medical doctor and faculty of MIT Sloan. But I'm not done yet. Also the award-winning author of Neuroscience for Leadership and The Source, Open Your Mind, Change Your Life. So hi, Tara. Hi, Liana. How are you? Well, that was definitely probably one of my most enjoyable intros that I've ever done for someone before. Um, So you're here today in a very unique capacity because not only are you a scientist, you're a leadership coach. And this topic is a incredible one that has sparked many debates across not just this newsroom, but at other places that I've been at. And so we're talking about crabs and basically the phenomenon that has permeated workplace psychology. What's um, interesting about this is that alive and well in the barrel of a fish market, any one of those crabs can easily escape, but their efforts are usually undermined by other crabs, ensuring the group's collective demise. So we've all been there, right? We've all been in a situation where members of a group will attempt to reduce the self-confidence of any member who tries to achieve success. And usually what we think um, is the reason for it is envy, resentment, spike, conspiracy, um, or competitive feelings. So, I mean, why is this? Is there science behind why this is part of human nature? So there's quite a few bits of science behind this in that you've described what I recognise in business as a toxic culture and the sort of behaviour that goes along with that, the individuals, the relationships, and just the culture that allows that to grow and, and be sustained. And it is related to our unconscious biases of in and out groups. But I'll come back to that later because the deepest wiring that relates to this sort of crab mentality is called loss aversion. And it's the fact that in our brains, we are wired to avoid loss twice as much as we are to get a reward. And so seeing somebody else as successful feels in our brains like we're losing a piece of our pie potentially so even though we may get a smaller piece of pie it could be part of something larger and better and the group doing well it doesn't feel like that to us in our brains when we're just trying to survive so if we see a crab escaping which I guess is like someone getting a promotion 
then that makes us think that we're not favoured or we're not successful. And it stimulates this fear of change or just fear of being less um, good than the other crab in our brain. And that biases all of our decision-making to fear, shame, disgust, sadness, or even anger. And so in more beneficial cultures where trust flows, the crabs or the people would work together and it would be much more collaborative and creative um, and be based on emotions such as love and trust and excitement. So there's been situations where, you know, I've uh, been in before where I've seen the very almost end result where it has become such a toxic environment that it's almost there seems to be no way for um, that group, that company to survive because it's so entrenched having this crab mentality. But where going back to the beginning, what can we identify as certain behaviours that maybe seem a little bit small, a little bit, you know, on the removed side, but that can actually lead to a supply chain of, you know, I suppose, detriment to the rest of the company? That's a really good question. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, this isn't all just about leadership and business. It's about primal human behaviours. And the crab is actually a really good analogy for not being able to let go and getting locked into a certain behavior or way of thinking. And once you're on that path, it's sort of like a failure to admit that maybe that's the wrong way to behave and you should go back and behave differently. Also, if there's one person who's in a really senior position or a group of people that have allowed a certain culture to flourish, if someone new comes in and tries to change it, there's a lot of resistance to that. And so that person can easily be ostracized or moved out of the group. Um, But it really takes one of the sort of people who either has the power and the status or is longstanding in the culture to say it's better for all of us to change the status quo. When it comes to that, though, what can an individual do? Because we talk about if, for instance, for maybe no fault of their own, um, they've been ostracised or they've been put aside or maybe being sabotaged to succeed... Is there any way of coming out of that? Because it just sounds to me that once that process is happening, there's no way back. I think if you're the person that's been ostracised, then obviously it's very easy to fall back on those what I call survival emotions, the fear, anger, disgust and shame. And what correlates with those emotions is levels of the stress hormone cortisol. And this can manifest physically. So even if you're not able to recognise the emotions that you're going through, if you start having sleep disturbance, feeling more irritable, getting aches and pains, getting more colds and flus, then you you know that your stress hormone levels are up, that it's starting to erode your immunity. And what goes along with that in the workplace is that the blood supply in your brain moves away from the higher functions where you can have new ideas, think outside the box, be collaborative, be creative, and you just go into survival mode. And you can come into work in the morning and sit at your desk and look like you shouldn't lose your job but just at the time that you need it the most you can't do those extra things that could really make a difference that sounds uh, to me pretty depressing (laughs) it just sounds like a downward spiral like there's no way of getting out of it and you know when you talk about those ostracized uh you know people though laying back on those survival instincts i mean what can be done then in terms of actually breaking out that cycle because just like you said that at the very time that you should be you know 
making sure that you're doing even more than you should be doing just to prove that you shouldn't be in that position. I mean, it just seems like a lose lose for that person, right? Well, the exciting news from from the most recent breakthroughs in neuroscience is that there is quite a lot that you can do um, to overcome that vicious cycle. And it starts with the physical drivers of optimizing brain performance. And they're, they're pretty basic, but um, I'll tell you some interesting facts about these basic fundamentals that really boost our brains. So the first one is rest. You could be lying in bed, having sleepless nights, worrying about losing your job, not getting the promotion, not getting the bonus, whatever it is, um, or just feeling very isolated from the group. But if you can ensure good quality and good length of sleep, whether that's by not drinking caffeine late in the day, not turning to that glass of wine in the evening because you're feeling ostracized, um, making sure that you're not sedentary all day and having a regular bedtime, a regular wake-up time, sleeping in a dark room with um, as quiet as possible, even if you have to use earplugs. And, you know, even going a bit further and maybe using... Um, lavender as an anchor for sleep for your brain so a smell can really put your brain into a routine um, using magnesium supplementation reduces the levels of that stress hormone cortisol um, and the best way to take it is through your skin so maybe a magnesium salt bath before bed if you're well rested well fed hydrated you take a few deep breaths and get some oxygen flowing in your brain and you've done whatever you can to be mindful and bring some simplicity into your life then you can choose to override that survival mode in your brain. And this comes on to the really exciting bit from neuroscience, which is that if we raise awareness of our biases, of our problems, of our rigid thinking, we can actually choose to change that. We can change our own brains in real time by the way that we think and the way that we behave in the outside world. So let's say that you ostracize somebody because... They don't fit into your idea of who should be in, in your team or all that happens to you. You can choose to override that behavior. However, we know from, for example, from studies in Israeli judges that the further away they got from having eaten something, the more likely they were to make racist decisions about who should go on parole. So make sure you have a snack before an important meeting. Make sure you have, you know, not skipped a meal before you might have to confront somebody about this bias. And also ask yourself what your own biases are and make sure that you're not feeding into that toxic culture. So basically, it comes down to a very toxic, hangry environment. So like food is obviously a huge factor in this. Food is huge because our brains only weigh two to three kilos and they're a tiny proportion of our entire body weight. But our brain uses up 25 to 30 percent of what we eat. And if you're under stress, if you're feeling ostracized, which, you know, to our brains which were wired millennia ago, that's a threat to our survival. You will be using up more and more of that sugar as soon as you eat it. And when I say sugar, I don't mean that you're eating, you know, cakes and biscuits all the time, but everything that we eat gets broken down to glucose and glucose and oxygen are the resources for our brain. So what's really interesting about this is, you know, when we go back to almost that uh, primal idea, obviously, of, you know, food and feeding our brains and things like that, and especially how it's, you know, mixed in with stress, there is a big badge of honour these days to be stressed and actually that it's acceptable to be stressed. And if you're not stressed, you're not working enough. So, I mean, 
I know that you've done um, studies yourself in certain sectors around workplace and stress. And I was just wondering if you can, you know, walk through some of the key findings that you found in those and how it hits, you know, the workforce. Yeah, so I changed career from having been a psychiatrist to being an executive coach 10 years ago. And obviously that was during the global financial crisis. So it wasn't that surprising that there were a lot of people that were stressed. But, um, you know, and I've said this openly in the press because I feel strongly about raising awareness about it. There were people that were so stressed they were dropping dead or having heart attacks at work. And that's not okay. A certain level of challenge or pressure can be really productive. And I think that's what people want when they feel like they're in a job that is satisfying and stretches them. But stress by definition, from my point of view as a former psychiatrist, is when the load upon your brain and body is too much for you to bear. So if we stick to that definition, then there's no place for stress in in your life or at work. And what I'm saddened to see is that 10 years later, we're still expecting people to go without sleep, to go without food, to work longer hours um, and you know to push people to a point where they may burn out in some ways we have made progress and I think there are more high profile people speaking out about this kind of issue now but it's absolutely still going on and we're not crabs we don't have that hard shell around us we are human so we do need to preempt and do the right things to prevent that when it comes to that like trying to prevent that we've talked about the individual level so maybe within the group and some being ostracized and how that starts you know in fruition creating this crab mentality environment but what can bosses do then in terms of whether it's part of a unit or actually being the ceo at the top how can they you know, it sounds very difficult for them to then identify that this kind of behaviour is happening because if it is part of, you know, the collective group and all saying this is all fine and getting rid of the people that they don't like or doing certain things that they all agree on, how do bosses identify and what can they do to actually stop this from happening in the future? I think there's two things here and that starts with the sort of things we've already mentioned, which is having canteens with healthy food having water you know freely available everywhere setting up the water coolers so that people have to walk past each other to you know and have those conversations with different people people that think differently um but then i think it you know what you were getting at is that it really does come down to role modeling of good behavior and you know in many ways and this is the lovely thing about your series of podcasts we have forgotten that basically we're still animals We're animals that walk on two legs and can speak and can plan for the future, but we're still animals. And a lot of tone is taken from the top. We're still very status-driven, like we're not that different to a troop of gorillas with a silverback as the boss. Um, And we take our cues on how stressed we need to be from the boss. Um, And that's why all sorts of organisational change work is really important to support leadership behaviours. But... If you have one psychopathic personality at the top of the business, it's very, very hard to change the culture of that business. On that note, we'll talk about that more after this break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's turn to the psychopathic bosses. I'm sure this is a, you know, everyone's favorite topic at some point in their lives and some point in their career. But um, as you mentioned before the break, we all take our cues from the leader, take our cues from the the person at the top. Um, but what's been interesting that over the last few years, there's been a lot of studies into how um, psychopaths actually in that percent of actually leading companies. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Well, these stats keep changing and I try to keep up with them. But but I think very, very basic stats are that the percentage of psychopaths in the general population is about 1%. The percentage in the prison population, so uh, I'm talking serious criminals, murderers, rapists, serial killers, is 10% plus and possibly much, much higher than that. But in the CEO population, it's 3%. So that's three times higher than the general population and possibly, you know, uh, close to a third of the prison population. What's really interesting about psychopathic personality is that the same traits in somebody who's been well-educated and had a certain level of supportive adults in their environment as they grew up can make them really successful. So being very charming, being ruthless, being fearless, um, being very driven, but also in you know the same personality traits in an environment where education you know wasn't given to the child, where they perhaps you know weren't in a stable family, um, can lead to very um, what we call deviant or criminal behaviours. So really, the difference between a judge and a gang leader is sort of, I always think of it as turning up the gas on a hob, like how much empathy do you have, how much remorse do you not have kind of thing. Um, so it's it's the same traits. And there's a really um, fascinating short quiz you can do online, the Oxford Psychopathy Test. Um, so, you know, if you're concerned about your psychopathic personality <laughs> traits, you can go and do that. Check it out. Well, I don't know if other people have done it, but I've definitely done those before. Um, I found them really interesting because some, I think what's, a really good point from all this is, especially in those quizzes, is that when you do do them, um, and by the way, everyone, I'm not a psycho, just to uh, put that out there. Um, the test told me so. Um, anyway, a lot of the questions that they ask you were things that seemingly quite normal traits that you'd have as maybe a leader um, in whatever faculty, whether you're the leader of a sports team or a leader in a company and things like that. So actually, does that mentality, especially if you're a psychopath, um, is actually good for business, which is why it makes it harder to root out that toxic environment because it's actually encouraged in a way. I'm just sort of frowning to myself because you didn't mention politics, <laughs> but we won't go into that. <laughs> I um, suppose because this is a work management one. But yeah, I mean, like, no, that's a very good point. I think, to be honest, I think on the politics front, I think we're just so used to it. We don't trust any politician, right, ever. So um, that's kind of intrinsic. But yeah, I mean, on that point. <laughs> so um, what's interesting about how psychopaths do well in business is that in certain types of business, so more the sort of fast moving, agile or startup type Um, environment where you tend to see some serial CEOs is because people with psychopathic traits 
do very well in chaos and they know that that makes life difficult for most other people. So they will actually try to create chaos in the environment because they know that not only can they survive, but they can thrive in that environment and that other people will get stressed and burnt out. That really is a good example of what happened with maybe some of like the biggest businesses or biggest banks that, you know, seem to have grown to mammoth proportions that you think, oh, this must actually be very well run or, you know, a startup that became uh, very big a few years later, you know, it's all functioning. And then suddenly overnight, it seems to collapse. And then after years of unraveling, that's that whole environment and culture that you didn't know about. But I mean, is this how it's always destined to be when it gets that toxic that you hit that point and there's no recovery because it's been created that way. I mean, how can they stop that from happening? I have to say, I have seen some businesses do this really well and it's really heartening um, um, when I see it. And so I want to be really clear that there's a difference between being a psychopath and having psychopathic personality traits. And probably what we're dealing with at the CEO level in most businesses is some traits of psychopathy, not being a a full psychopath. Um, And so what we tend to see is that there will be a history of many jobs. There will start to be a story of some chaos, some destruction, some, you know, relationships being damaged, some issues arising. And because I'm such a big believer in neuroplasticity, I think that if there are some traits there's still hope for changing that behavior by altering that brain pathway. I mean, you know, we know that we can make a lot of changes in psychology and psychiatry units around the country for rapists to get remorse. If we can do that, we can work with CEOs who might have a few psychopathic personality traits. But where I've seen businesses do it really well is that if a situation becomes so toxic and it's so misaligned to the values of the company, they will actually be brave enough to get rid of that person. And there is a a level at which you have to be able to do that. So I think if there's dishonesty, if there's a lack of ethics or moral judgment, then neuroplasticity is great, but it still has limits as far as we know. The research is ongoing. Um, At some point, there has to be courage in an organization to actually weed out the cause of that kind of behavior. You know, it's great to hear that that has actually happened when you've been working with companies, Um, because especially from the outside when, you know, especially as a reporter and you've, uh, you know, witnessed uh, certain companies without any kind of, you know, personal insight into that situation and over the years. I mean, it's quite heartening to hear that. Um, However... At the same time, isn't, I mean, this is the kind of vicious circle, right? That, you know, that person that does have the courage to say, hey, this isn't working. Look, the business is being run into the ground right now just because, you know, everyone would rather fail together rather than like one person succeed to turn that company around. So what kind of level of person has to be able to do that? It has to really come from the top, right? It has to come from the top. Um, I've seen it come from HR. So it has to come from the CE level. Um, actually, the problem isn't when the company's been run into the ground. The problem is when the company's doing really well and there's a toxic huh. person because then there's less incentive to get rid of that person. Um, but like I said, having seen that happen once, um, and this is based on another piece of neuroscience. So if we believe that something's possible, it changes in our own brain what we can achieve. And the classic example of that is Roger Bannister running the four-minute mile. Before he did that we didn't believe, no one believed that it was humanly possible to run a a mile Mm. in four minutes. As soon as he did it, 
seven other people did it in the next three months. And so I think your podcast highlighting this sort of story, me telling you that I've been working with global corporations for 10 years and I've seen someone do it, means that everyone can do it. So I think, you know, what you're doing by raising awareness is is massive. And again, coming back to the neuroscience, the um, sort of path to changing behavior, so changing pathways in our own brain, but also, you know, I'm doing some research now onto organizational plasticity. So how do big organizations flex and change and pivot into the future? It's a four-step process. It's raised awareness, um, focused attention, which means that if you're seeing evidence of toxic behaviors, you note that down, you gather the evidence around it. And then deliberate practice, which is helping people to change those behaviors, trying to change the status quo and the culture of the business. And then the fourth step is accountability. And that can be, you know, sort of, this is what I need to see changing. And then, you know, all the steps towards getting there. But it also has to end with, if this doesn't change, then you're going to go. So behavior change, how do you apply that to a business? And can you follow those four steps in an organization? So for the organizational plasticity, there's a slightly different version of the four steps. Whereas in an individual, to build a pathway in the brain that correlates with a new behavior, you have to raise awareness, focus attention, do deliberate practice, and be held accountable. I've actually taken the neural mechanisms of change at a sort of more unit level and applied them to an organization. So the four steps there are myelination. Now in the brain, that's having a fatty insulation layer around a neuron, which improves efficiency. So in the business, that's improving business efficiency. Next, we have synaptic connections. We have about 100 billion um, neurons in the brain, and they're all connected at little junctions called synapses. And I like to think of an organization as each person, each team, each business, each, you know, within an industry connecting with each other. So connecting with your stakeholders, your customers. Um, and synaptic connections is really about relationships and communication. So that's the piece for organizational plasticity. Then we have something called neurogenesis, which happens a lot in baby brains, happens less so in adult brains, but it does happen. And that's little embryonic cells growing into neurons and connecting up with existing neurons. So the correlation for that in business is innovation. And finally, um, one of my new topics of research is around epigenetics as applied to business cultures. So I'm calling it epicultures. Epigenetics is the influence of the environment on our genes. So all the lifestyle factors that predict whether we'll live a long time, become obese, get diabetes, be married or single, these are things that influence us throughout our life and change the genes that we were born with. So in business cultures, I am starting to do research on all the psychosocial geopolitical events around the world and what that means about how we have to pivot going into the future. So obviously the, you know, the big thing at the moment isn't geopolitical, but it's to do with technology and AI and how that's going to change business, how we will have to not only um, manage machines, but work with machines and manage teams that are half human, half machine. Um, so there's going to be so much new learning going forward. And I think if we look at those neural mechanisms and apply them to an organization, it's really going to help people make sense of an uncertain future. 
Well, I think that is a very great place to wrap up and especially with optimism in terms that you can change your brains. Um, so thank you very much, Dr. Tara Swat, thank you. Um, for your time. That was fascinating. And all you listeners, don't forget, you can find show notes, helpful articles under work and management channel on uk.finance.yahoo.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, subscribe and tell your friends about us. And while you're at it, download the Yahoo Finance app for unparalleled access to data and alerts on the go. Yahoo Finance Presents It's a Jungle Out There was produced by Liana Brinded and Caitlin Mercer with music by Gregory Moore and sound design and editing by Lolita Laguna. Join us next week when we'll be discussing ants and productivity. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.